Well, good morning, everyone. Um, can I echo Duncan's welcome and thank him for his kind introduction? It's a bit different for me to be on this side of a chairman's introduction, but it's a real privilege to be able to open God's word with you this morning as we come to the book of James once again. Growing up in a family with three women, Strictly Come Dancing was on TV every Saturday night in our house. And every time a couple were about to leave the stage after finishing their dance, the former host, Bruce Forsyth, would lean in and whisper to them, don't tell anyone, but you're my favorites. Now, this is a lighthearted joke from a well-loved TV host, but it does reveal an element of truth about the human heart. You see, we all like to think that we're highly thought of. We all like to be lifted up. We all like to be someone's favorite. But if I was to turn things around, I think we all know what it's like to feel the effects of favoritism. Maybe we've been made to feel inadequate as we've been overlooked in favor of someone without a good reason. It's never a nice thing to deal with, and it can have very real and very dark consequences. We learned last week that this letter by James is written to Christians who were scattered throughout the world, and that James's core reason for writing this letter is a desire that believers are not double-minded, caught in two minds, torn between God and the world. His first area of practical application for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was our response to trials in life. He reminded us that experiences that test and develop faith are ways to make us complete in our striving to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. James concludes his opening remarks by introducing practical Christianity, which is centered around the word of truth, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is characterized by both the hearing of the word and then putting it into action. And this brings us to chapter two, where James outlines his next set of practical instructions to the believers. So if you have a Bible with you, can you turn or swipe to James chapter two? And we're gonna read verses one to 13 now. So this is James chapter two, reading from verse one. And this is the word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich 
the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Favoritism or partiality is the focus of this section of James's practical teachings. In verse 1, James unites himself with the fellow believers he is writing to by referring to them as my brothers. James is highlighting that the central aspect between himself and the reader is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through their faith, they are all part of God's family. James then lays out his central point in black and white. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For those who profess a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no room for acts of favoritism, none at all, and there are no exceptions. In verses two to four, we are introduced to a clear example of how favoritism can be displayed. The four if, to begin verse two, suggests to us that this is a hypothetical scenario, but one that would have been clear to the Christians, maybe even a situation that they themselves had experienced before, and one that would impact their conscience. Verse two depicts the arrival of two men into their assembly. It is not explicitly stated what the setting here is, but it is widely understood that this would be referring to a public worship service, and it seems as though both of them would be visiting the church. The two visitors don't seem to be known to the church members. Their judgment is based simply on external appearance. And the distinguishing feature between the two men that we're told about is what they're wearing. The first man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, while the second man's clothes are described as shabby, and he is also explicitly described as being poor. We aren't told that the first man is rich, but it is clear that a position of status and social dignity is displayed by his extravagant clothing. Verse three then goes on to tell us how favoritism is showcased in the church. A fuss is made over the man with fine clothing as the church members say, you sit in a good place. A personal invitation to him 
to sit in a good seat amongst the assembly of believers. The poor man is also addressed personally, but with an abrupt tone, he's told, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Both of these options demonstrate a complete lack of respect for him as a person. And they imply that his presence in the building is a hindrance to them. You see, not only is he not offered as good a seat as the rich man, he's not even offered a proper seat at all. He is either forced to stand or deal with the humiliation of sitting at the feet of another man. The difference in their treatment is stark and blatant. James then notes in verse 4 that by showing favoritism in this way, the Christians have then made distinctions among themselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Favoritism is described as an evil thought. There is no doubting the severity given to this issue by James in these verses. And whilst I read this section of verses, I was challenged by the idea that this could easily be something that could happen in 2022. If a person with shabby clothes walked into our building, would we treat them with the same courtesy and respect that someone of wealth and status would receive? I think we'd all like to say yes deep down, but we're not entirely sure that would be the case. James has made it abundantly clear that as true believers in the Lord Jesus, we should not show any kind of favoritism. But why? The passage shows us three reasons as to why this is so important. Firstly, favoritism goes against God's evaluation and his plan for humanity in verses five and six. Secondly, we often show favoritism to those who do us the most damage in verses six and seven. And then finally, favoritism goes against God's law in verses eight to 11. So we'll look at each of these in turn. So firstly, favoritism goes against God's evaluation and his plan for humanity. In verse five, we read, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The issue we are confronted with here is the conflict between the worldly standard that your worth as an individual is determined by your status, wealth, ability, race, to name a few things, while the Lord places intrinsic value on us as those made in his own likeness without distinction. And this theme can be regularly seen throughout the scriptures. As we saw earlier this year in our studies in 1 Samuel, when Samuel is at Jesse's house to anoint God's chosen king, David's older brothers looked much more suitable candidates than he did. But God tells Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And how much more should this be true in the church 
Christians in particular should know that God does not play favorites. As Paul writes to Christians in Galatia, in chapter 3, verse 28 of his book, we read, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is clear from this verse that all humans, no matter who they are, all have the same intrinsic worth through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, according to James, it is those who are poor in the world that have been chosen to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom. The earthly standards of striving for power and wealth mean nothing for God in the context of his heavenly kingdom. He even points out the special place that those believers who live for Christ while struggling on earth will have with him in heaven. And there is no greater example of this than the actions of the Lord Jesus himself while he was here on earth. We see this demonstrated clearly through two encounters he had in Luke chapter 7. Firstly, Jesus is asked by a centurion to heal his sick servant. And following on from this, he then brings a widow's son back from the dead. You see, the difference in status between a centurion and a widow at this time could not have been wider. Yet Jesus makes no distinction and offers no preferential treatment in favor of the centurion. In fact, while the centurion came in faith to ask for the Lord's help, Jesus voluntarily stepped in to perform this miracle and bring this woman's son back to her. The Lord clearly displayed the importance of showing no partiality towards those with a high social standing. And in fact, in his example, it shows us that we often need to step up and help those who are not as fortunate. In verse 6, James states, but you have dishonored the poor man. This is making it clear to the readers that the actions described in verses 2 to 4 were the opposite to the promise and plan that God had for the poor that we just looked at in verse 5. God will honor those who don't meet the standards that we as humans have set to determine a person's value. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be image bearers of God. So we must reflect his evaluation and attitude towards these people. So favoritism goes against God's evaluation and his plan for humanity. Secondly, we often show favoritism to those who do us the most damage. In the second half of verse 6, and then into verse 7, James tries to show the readers how stupid their favoritism is in practice. He poses them three questions in order to make his point. The first two are found in verse 6, and they state, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, the economic situation in the first century Middle East 
consisted of a small group of wealthy landowners and merchants who accumulated large amounts of wealth and power. All the while, large numbers of people got poorer. Now, it is likely that most of James's readers were part of this poorer majority group, and some of them were probably financially disadvantaged because they had decided to follow Jesus. This scenario also would have been very familiar to readers of the Old Testament, as the exploitation and oppression of the poor is regularly denounced throughout Scripture. So James is trying to drill home the point that the people they are concerned with impressing are the very ones who are more likely to oppress them and probably influence judgments against them in the courts at this time. They were putting these people up on a pedestal and for what gain? But more importantly though, James points out in verse seven that the rich were often the ones who blasphemed the honorable name by which you were called. We can assume that the name by which you were called is referring to Christ, the one in whom these Christians had their faith. So not only are these people suffering materially, but their faith is also being disrespected by the rich to whom they are more likely to show favoritism. For us, so often in this day and age, we can get so caught up in celebrity culture, fawning over stars and putting these people up on the lofty pedestals. And whilst enjoying film, music, and sport is a good thing, often celebrity voices promote the message of self-reliance as the basis of their success and put a huge deal of importance on worldly things. They have no time for our Lord God and the hope that we have through him. And they can often be dismissive about the Christian faith that is so dear to us. So we need to ask ourselves, why do we put these people on a pedestal as well? So we often show favoritism to those who do us the most damage. And finally, favoritism goes against God's law. James makes reference to the royal law in verse 8. In this case, he's referring to God's law, which is first introduced in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then reiterates the importance of this himself in Matthew chapter 22 in verses 34 to 40. He is asked what the greatest commandment is. And he says that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But he quickly follows that up with the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. First and foremost, we are commanded to love the Lord our God the creator who has given us all things. But this then overflows into the second commandment, to love your neighbor. If we truly love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind, then we should show love for our neighbors, God's children, 
who he loves and are made in his image. James commends anyone who is following this law and putting it into practice. But he stresses in verse 9 that anyone who shows partiality is committing a sin and is breaking this law. You see, the whole purpose of God's royal law is to show love to our neighbor by elevating them to the level that we ourselves would want to be treated. But the act of favoritism is the exact opposite of this. We end up putting other people down in order to lift ourselves or someone else up. And we're told what the consequences of sin are in verses 10 and 11. James states that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It's a bit like someone hanging on to a chain. It doesn't matter if all the links are still intact. If one link in the chain breaks, the chain will come apart and that person will fall. James uses the example of not committing adultery but being guilty of murder. In this case, that person has failed up against the law. It's also important for us not to think that favoritism isn't that big of a deal so we can just go on with it. James makes it very clear that if we are guilty of favoritism, then we are guilty under the law. We as Christians should strive to obey God's law, the law of liberty, that provides us freedom from sin through the gospel. So favoritism goes against God's law. So we've looked at these three different reasons that James gives to explain why favoritism is never acceptable. He ends this section by outlining the principle that underpins each of these three separate reasons. In verse 12, James appeals to believers on the basis that we will be judged on how we speak and act. Doers, not just hearers of the word, as we learned about last Sunday night, based on the law of Christ. It is through this law of liberty that we as Christians have experienced mercy and we have received forgiveness from sin, the good news of the gospel. Verse 13 then gives us the vindication for the appeal that was laid out in verse 12. As we have been granted mercy from God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that absorbed the judgment that we were ought to receive, we should then show mercy to those we interact with in our lives. James is reiterating the words of Jesus himself in the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Ultimately, how can we claim to have received God's mercy if we don't show mercy and kindness to others? So again in this section, James is identifying the dangerous tendency in us to be double-minded, mentioned in chapter 1. To on the one hand, as verse 1 says, 
hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and yet, on the other hand, in verse 4, become judges with evil thoughts, to flip-flop between living according to God's values and then according to the world's values. And James has laid out three clear reasons as to why this ought not to be, why those who have experienced the mercy of God should not and cannot show favoritism in our behavior towards others. So what practical ways can we as a church ensure we are not double-minded in how we view and value other people? How can we avoid favoritism and the earthly worldview that leads to favoritism? As mentioned earlier, the concept of favoritism is rooted in the human perspective of how value is assigned. The idea that our status, wealth, ability, and displayed image is what gives us value. For young people in particular, we now live in a world highly influenced by social media in which we're pushed to try and display the best image of ourselves, even an image that is false. And as a result, we can often fall into the trap of showing favoritism based on the principles of this world. As Christians, we must remember that our inherent value comes from our Creator God, who made us in His own image, and that our identity is found in Jesus Christ, the one who came down from heaven, leaving His Father's side to live as a perfect man, die on a cross, and rise three days later so that we can have our sins forgiven and become part of God's family. We then need to consider how favoritism can creep into church life. I'm sure we all know of those people in the church who offer a friendly face when visitors join with us. But what is our own personal response when someone who maybe doesn't fit the norm comes into the church? I know that too often my thought process is that that's the job of the welcome team or the handful of friendly faces will deal with it. We often don't think we're doing much wrong, but when we shy away from speaking to people, we are in fact showing favoritism deep down. In a world where people are subjected to favoritism and prejudice in so many different walks of life, the church should be a place where they feel accepted and valued as we reflect the love of God, our Father, the one who loves each one of us. And it's the job of all of us to ensure that everyone feels welcomed and valued in this place. It's not a job for the few. This is a way for us to show a public outworking of the inward change that has taken place in our hearts through our salvation in Jesus Christ. And there is no better exhortation to this than Jesus' own words 
in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is speaking about the final judgment and he speaks to a group on his right. And he said, inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this group protested that they hadn't done this for the Lord Jesus directly. But he replied, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. As it is God and God alone who acts as the righteous judge, it means our responsibility as believers is to reach out to all people with the love of Christ Jesus as a way of serving him and demonstrating our changed hearts due to the faith that we hold. This is a way that we can be doers and not just hearers of the word. So to conclude, James reminds us that showing favoritism is a sin in God's eyes as all of God's children are created in his own image and with inherent value. And as believers, we should strive to display the change in our hearts by listening and then doing what we're commanded to do in God's word. And one way that we can do that is by ensuring that the church is completely countercultural and different to the world around us, where social status can sway our treatment of others. People should feel welcomed, valued, and loved when they are present with us, either individually or when we gather as an assembly of God's people. Let us never forget that we all come to the cross as equals, needing a savior, and having put our trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation, we are welcomed into his family where there are no favorites. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of James and for the truths that we can learn from it. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't play favorites, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, but you sent your son into the world to die for each one of us. And Lord, for those of us who have had our lives transformed through the gift of eternal life, we pray that you'll help us and guide us as we show your love to everyone who comes through our doors of the church and who we encounter throughout the week. And as we look forward to a few more weeks of summer with Community Week, we pray that will be a real opportunity for us to display your love to anyone who walks past this building. Lord, we pray that this will be a place that is welcoming and loving to anyone who comes in. So Lord, please be with us for the rest of this day. We thank you for this time we've spent together. In your name, amen. Thank you.